0: Welcome to Plastics Unwrapped, a series supported by Dow, the material science company. I'm your host, Maitreyi Sitaraman. In this podcast, we're on the hunt for solutions to some of the toughest challenges facing the plastics industry. I'll be joined by my producer, Lisa Desai. Hey, everyone. She's the woman with all the facts and figures we're going to be talking about we're going to try and have some seriously honest conversations with guests from across sectors and from across the world. So let's together figure out what it'll really take to save the future of our planet.
1: We have to become disruptive. We have to change our business models for the future. We have no choice.
0: This week, we're talking about innovation, entrepreneurs and the science behind them, disrupting plastics and pushing it forward in its journey towards circularity. Joining me as usual is our resident reality check, our producer, Lisa Desai. And Lisa, honestly, when I started researching all that's going on, I went down a rabbit hole. I went down the same rabbit hole. And you know what? I found that there are seven different types of plastic and a lot of them are easily recycled, but there are some seriously complex structures added to that. I mean, tell me about it. It's a bunch of molecules that were jimmied together by science just about a 100 years ago. And it took off really only from the 70s when the stuff was made strong enough and cheap enough for us to use it for everything. I mean, we made this stuff to last and it does last. Plastic
2: bags, they take 20 years to decompose. Coffee cups, 30 years. And when it comes to PET, and that's the stuff in our water bottles, 450 years. And I'm the worst offender. My kids' diapers, 500 years to decompose. Oh, you bad, bad girl.
0: 500 years. We should crucify you. But you know what? I've also thought about this. When science creates something and it starts showing its ugly side, science also usually has the capacity to find solutions. The fashion business, for example, is in desperate need for scientific solutions. 11% of our plastic waste comes from clothes and textiles and the industry is one of the major contributors to microfibers that enter our oceans. Now, a small startup in Tel Aviv, Israel that we found called Balena wants to try and end that cycle. So what have they done different? They created a material called Biosir, which they claim is the only flexible, fully compostable thermoplastic material out there. Take a listen. It all started when we identified two major gaps. Billions of pounds of fashion garments are being sent to landfills at the end of their use, with no clear end-of-use solution. The demand for bioplastics is ever-increasing. But they aren't advanced enough to replace traditional plastics in consumer goods. Until now. It's a big claim. Now to test it, they made a slide basically a slipper, completely from Biosur, something that people would use every day. Once people finished using them, the idea is to take it back to a collection point, in this case, flower shops across Tel Aviv, where they're again collected, taken to a compost facility, shredded, buried in the soil, and within a few months, according to Balana, totally decomposed, without a trace. An interesting model, but fashion supply chains are notoriously complex. Garments are made of more than one component. So collecting the stuff, all of this has huge hurdles. So how do you scale? I spoke to the founder and CEO of Belenna, David Rubach, to dig a little bit deeper. David, welcome to the show. I know the fashion industry is considered one of the most polluting industries on the planet. How does your technology work? Can you explain it a little bit?
3: Yeah, we noticed that the fashion industry is one of the most interesting industries in terms of neglecting the end of use of our products. And this is what we decided to do, is to start developing a biodegradable polymer that will suit the application needed in the fashion industry. So, for example, footwear, that uh, we noticed the TPU Is one of the most polluting plastics but also advanced plastics. It's like a plastic that changes our life and helps us to increase the quality of life but at the same time also is a super polluting material and this is why we decided to start with a replacement for a TPU and we developed the first compostable elastomer it's a material that is fully flexible and soft, but at the same time also fully biodegradable in an industrial compost environment.
0: Is that scalable, though? Because the minute you start making collection points, that only works for a single product. doesn't really work when you start putting this material in other products, correct? Yes.
3: Yeah, so, so my answer is it's definitely scalable. And I think that it's not me saying it. It's the huge brands out there. And something we really want to change is that currently when I'm going to buy a product, I'm also buying the responsibility for the end of use of it. Although I didn't produce this product, I didn't choose which material will be in this product. And something that is starting to change, and we're happy to see it, is that brands understand that at the end, they are also responsible for what's going to happen with this product in the end. And they are starting to make a collect back. And we see it more and more. And if you ask me in two years, a company that won't have a take-back program for the product won't be exist, both from policy and regulation and also from brand awareness. So the take-back mechanism, it's not something we invent. What we invent is that for the first time, after the clients bring back the product to the take-back spot, instead of disappear somewhere claiming that it will be recycled, it's directly going to an industrial compost to be biodegraded. And I think it's more clear to the client Because we can really track the slides from the flower store to the industrial compost, presenting to each client the fully biodegradation of its product. And what we are doing, we now duplicate this model for the retail and consumer goods brands. So we don't have retail stores, so we use those flower store. But you can imagine those giant brands that have already stores in the city. So the stores in the city will be the place you are buying, but also the place you are returning the compostable collection to the store and from the store to the industrial compost.
0: In my head, that works really well if the entire product is made of your technology. But if it's pieces of your technology in another consumer product, how would you deal with that problem of scaling the degradation process?
3: So it's a great question. And part of our model is that we will partner only on products that will be fully compostable. It means that we will always make sure that all the other materials and parts in the shoe, for example, will be compostable. But if we take like a sneaker, so yes, we might replace the polluting plastic. But at the same time, if we are using a natural canvas that could fully compost, it doesn't mean that we invent the canvas, but it's a fully compostable material that we can use in a shoe as well. So this is part of the holistic approach. The nature did already a good work in terms of fibers. But for the plastic solutions, this is our goal to really bring an innovative solution to replace it.
0: So what's the timeline ideally for you at this point for expanding beyond Tel Aviv? How are you planning to grow this business?
3: So we are currently finalizing our first material, the Biosir Flex, which is the replacement for TPU. We're already testing our material with the most important companies in the area to really try and finalizing the commercial product and to expand our solution all over the world. And we're already starting to also looking on other materials. So if the flex is a replacement for TPU, we're starting to look on other materials that we know that are a pain for the industry and to really replace one by one that at the end, the consumer industry will have a compostable and biodegradable solution for each material that we are using in the industry. And we hopefully that this year will start to commercialize more and more partnership around the world.
0: Disruptors need money and the money comes when the technology is fantastic. So you're in the proof of the pudding kind of phase. How much of a difference would it make for you at this point if big conglomerates, big multinationals backed you either as customers or as investors? What would that change for you?
3: It's a good question because it's also a question from our strategy. To go to this direction or not, I think it will definitely help us to secure that as much effort we are putting on the research and development, at the end there will be a place to secure this development. But at the same time, sometimes working with only one big company that guides you from the first days of the startup, it could be also a bit problematic because then you are not exposed to the entire market And for example, it might be that one corporation have specific needs, but the other corporation have other needs. And then you will find yourself after five years with only one solution for only one company or like industry. And I think there are good things having this kind of investors and partners early on, but there is also this advantage. And I think each entrepreneur and each founder needs to take it as a consideration to his strategy, basically.
0: Well, you're no longer in the niche market anymore, my friend. I think at this point, your industry can be considered a game changer. So good luck, David, and we wish you well. And we wish all of those entrepreneurs like you out there trying to save our planet all the very best. Thank you for joining us.
3: Thank you very much.
0: Definitely some interesting innovation there from Belena, but it's just one example of one kind of solution with one kind of financing. Like many startups, achieving scale and taking this beyond Tel Aviv is going to be the big challenge. But every company, it's on its own journey. Other small innovative players want to tap into the global reach, the resources, the expertise, brand equity, and most importantly, capital from the big boys in the business. And why not? I mean, Dow, for example, alone has 104 manufacturing sites in 31 countries with sales of almost $60 billion. So it makes sense that some founders think it's a smart play. But what's really in it for big business and an entrepreneur? Can they actually be in a symbiotic relationship? Let's ask Felix Bobbing, founder of Plastigas, a Swiss company developing circular feedstock for plastics, which Dow has been backing and is invested in. And he's joined by Christophe Marchais, Global Business Development Director of Packaging and Speciality Plastics at Dow. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Christoph, that was a mouthful of a title.
1: Oh thanks very much and great to be here. Exciting. Really happy to cover entrepreneurship. You know, don't worry about my title, is maybe long, but I look after disruption. So I'm the one who disrupts. uh, my business. So this is a very exciting place to be.
0: And Felix, welcome as well.
1: Thanks for the invite as well. And uh, for the
2: next time, I'll make sure to have a longer title associated to, to my name.
0: Oh, founders, just not long enough. I agree. Christoph, quick question to you. Why are you so interested in disruption? Why is this important to Dow that you invest in innovations and startups like Felix's?
1: Look, it's very simple. We are going through major, major changes. You know, Dow has multiple businesses. The largest one is packaging, especially plastic. So basically, we produce polyethylene for several industries, the largest one being packaging. And, you know, we all know that we have to reinvent ourselves. Uh, we have to become much more circular. We have to decarbonize our plants. And we know the journey we need to take. We know our strengths. We obviously have a lot of R&D programs internally. But it's not good enough. We need to collaborate. We need technologies that eventually we don't have that are outside. We need other corporations who have different business models, who are in different parts of the value chain. So it's very, very important that we become very external, that we look to disruptive technologies, uh, that we invest into them, that we collaborate. And so at the end, uh, is, we have to become disruptive. We have to change our business models for the future. We have no choice. You've
0: brought along Felix with you. Felix, tell us a little bit about the company, about Plastogas, and what you guys do and what it's been like since Dow invested in you. I think that was announced in 2022. It's been just over a year. What's that relationship been like?
2: Yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent question. Now, Before I can say how the relationship is like, it's important to say where we are coming from. We're a university spin-off, meaning that the founders of the company are actually all scientists. And we come from a university in Switzerland where we were working on a particular topic of catalysis that we believed as founders could be useful, scaled and beneficial to the society and to the you know, recycling industry. But a little bit like Christoph said before, from the early days, we thought this is very complex and we cannot do it alone. We're good at science, we're good in the lab, but we have no experience in scaling up. And we need to team up with uh, suitable partners from this. And as a startup, you're kind of free to choose with whom you're going to work with. You can work with venture capitalists, with business angels, with corporation. It's kind of up to the entrepreneur to decide or to the founders. And in our case, we were dedicated to work from the start with the chemical industry because we believe what we develop as technology is very complex. And because it is complex, we need all the collaboration and
1: all the help we can get maybe I could explain why we felt that was a very good fit with Plastogaz. When we discovered Plastogaz and the small teams, they were at the time, and they're still a small team, we really saw that they had a very, very interesting technology with a very high potential. It's an advanced chemical recycling technology with potentially the ability to go in a very high quality oil, which is crackable, very high yield, and eventually much lower CO2 footprints than other technologies on the market. So this is the first thing. The second thing Felix mentioned, which which I think is also essential to invest into a minority part of Plastogaz. I'm personally sitting on the board of Plastogaz, and it is very, very important for me to do the best for Plastogaz. Uh, so this is hugely important when a corporation invests in a startup, is to make sure you do the best for the startup and not, not for the corporation that is behind
0: How do you then balance between business strategy that you guys have to live with and the innovations that are going on in-house? You mentioned that at the start and the innovators that you are helping scale up because sometimes the direction can be different, can't it?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, there is not always a uh, one way of doing it, but usually the way we do it is that we would choose different topics. So internally, we would take one direction, which is the one we believe we have all the strengths, the competencies to do it. You know, usually, you know, requiring much more resources and identify other technologies, for example, like plastic gas. Uh, you know, we would typically not work on such a specific technology internally. I mean, we have to become more entrepreneurs. I guess we we will talk about it as a large corporation. Operation, and we need to invest we need to bet on a few things and we need to take risk and you know this is what we are doing with Plastogas they have a very good technology but of course they have to scale it up now
0: so in the scale-up process Felix what do you expect from working with these large companies or with a large company like Dow right now
2: Uh, Actually, a lot of things uh, that we can call support, I would say, because as entrepreneurs and as founders, we're really passionate about uh, technology and we really want to do our best. But sometimes maybe because we don't have the global outreach or the network, we don't know about specific, for example, partners, suppliers, etc. And when we have a technical question, for instance we can seek some support and this can open doors. So we have observed this firsthand. We have some suppliers that before investment would not reply to our emails and after investment all of a sudden reply to the emails. And that helps us accelerate into our development journey.
0: The gas story sounds super exciting. What other technologies are you getting excited by that
1: you are investing in at this point? It's public knowledge that uh, DAO has invested in another startup, which is, of course, growing now, which is Mura. And the reason we connected with Mura means they had a very good management team, very interesting technology and very much ahead versus all we're doing. So a really exciting uh, company, a management team. Another company where we have invested and we are very close to is Valorégen in France. And the reason we got very interested by the management team and and what they were doing was really something a bit different, uh, more the ecosystem approach and try to make it very cost effective. So by combining a site and a technology where you have mechanical recycling combined with advanced recycling or chemical recycling. So this is a very interesting concept. But of course, we are looking to other things. I cannot disclose names here, but we have a huge technology challenge in our industry, either in mechanical recycling, advanced recycling or other technologies. I mean, you can talk about digitalization, artificial intelligence, you know, you can talk about washing technologies.
0: So all of these disruptive technologies, Felix, when you give birth to the idea in a university environment, what's driving you? Is it a conducive environment so the regulations are in place or you can see a future there? Or is it just pure sheer excitement that you might have an idea that can work
2: I would say more the latter than the former. You have to put into context how it is to work as a PhD in a university. You work for science and to push the limits of the boundaries. Um, and, And I think everyone as a PhD wants to push things forward in a good sense and benefit society. And entrepreneurship came on top of that because I realized that this was a way to deliver the value to the society at large, but other methods are also possible to work. And of course, when you start building your technology, in fact, you start building a company, not a technology, then of course, you have to make sure you understand the business, understand the industry in which you're going to operate. And of course, and very importantly, understand the, the regulation. But again, we come from the science And those who best understand the regulation and the industry is the industry. So again, I come back, I spiral back to the fact that we wanted to work with the industry because we believe that the industry, in this case, DAO, could really assess whether our technology could make sense in this environment and in this changing environment.
0: Christophe, if I can ask you, how much does a regulatory environment determine where you park your money, where you invest, the kind of technologies that you're investing in? In a previous episode, Haley from Dow talks a lot about sustainability he was saying you need a system change, but regulation is the crux of it. But sometimes that feels like a little bit of a crutch in the industry using regulation. Do you think about regulation when you're thinking about where you want to invest in your money?
1: I mean, regulations, of course, for corporations like us, it's a challenge because it's forcing us to change. On the other side is also an opportunity because it sets, it sets boundaries. It sets rules. But I think the challenge that the chemical and plastics industry needs to deliver in terms of circularity, I think we are far beyond the regulatory frame. Consumers are changing. We are all changing, you know, circularity, CO2 footprint, uh, decarbonization. So, but of course, I think you need a regulatory frame to really get started. Started. The beauty of investing in startups is not massive amount of money for corporation, but is really taking a few bets for the future.
0: It's a huge effort indeed. You've got innovation centers around the world. You've got the venture capital arm. You've got so many different ways that you seem to be wanting to enter this disruptive space. So I'm going to ask you, Felix, how much has uh, their investment helped you grow in the last just over a year?
2: Well, short answer is a lot. I think, and I don't want to criticize the startup ecosystems, which are really, really good and excellent at getting you started. I received so much support from the Canton of Vaux that helped me switch my brain from scientist to entrepreneur. But one thing that seems to be lacking is the capex investment. When you're doing clean tech, you're normally building hardware, you're building machines, and these are expensive. And if entrepreneurs or if startups want to reach their goals, they need to have this investment into CapEx. With the Dow investment, we could invest in our bench scale pilot, which is going to substantially de-risk the, the process. And without CapEx investment, you can play around a little bit. You can do a couple of experiments with universities, but actually you cannot generate the data that you need to
1: scale up. Maybe I want to cover another point. Maybe it's not about technology, new business models. But it's not only about startups. Uh, we also need to cooperate, collaborate with companies as large or similar to us, but who are eventually in different positions the value chain. Uh, either they have technology we don't have, or we have similar technologies, but we can accelerate together. Or we are uh, different companies with different models, and we can maybe create a creative business model out of the two. So there are a lot of thinking on getting out of the box and being disruptive.
0: So where do we look for the next set of disruptions, Christoph? Where is the technology improvement required? Because the industry gets hit a lot with criticism of regulation is the issue, or we can't move fast enough, or we don't have the recycling facilities.
1: So it has to come at many levels. So so this is a challenge for the industry. I think the industry is doing already a lot. It's just maybe it's not very visible, uh, maybe in terms of volume and and commercialization. But uh, I think in the last five years, it's really amazing the accelerations, the amount of investment and risk-taking for the industry. But it's not enough. I think from a technology point of view, probably starts with, with the waste you know uh, to become circular you need to have better management of the waste so some countries are doing better than others but generally speaking we need as a society to do a better job in separating waste in collecting the waste in sorting against the waste and coming with the fractions that do make sense for the industry whether it's for advanced recycling or chemical recycling or for mechanical recycling so this is where there is still a lot of innovation required and and then when the waste arrives into a plant, uh, you still need a lot of innovation on how you're going to clean, wash, etc. This type of waste, I mean, you can bring artificial intelligence, you can bring special washing technologies, maybe special washing uh, formulations, surfactants, chemicals. You know, you can do also a lot of improvements on the, on how you compound. So. And if I talk about advanced recycling or other people call it chemical recycling, we are making huge progress, but it's not enough. We need to come with uh, technologies who are much more effective, much higher yields, where you can put less capex, low opex, you know, much more economically viable and even more important, who have a a low CO2 footprint. So, and this is the direction Plaster Gas is going. So this is why uh, Plaster Gas can bring a lot of value to the industry, but it has to continue.
0: Felix, do's and don'ts when you are an entrepreneur and you, for example, have chosen to work with an incumbent industry leader.
2: I feel like perhaps I described ourselves as a bunch of scientists in a lab but we actually go out as well and experience the, the industry. I think those and those happen as soon as you embark on your entrepreneurship uh, journey. Do be humble because there's a lot you don't know. As a scientist, I had to learn business finance, legal IP uh, competition etc of an industry I didn't know much about that's the uh, first thing. So do do share because if you don't share people cannot help you. you have to be open. of course you don't have to give all your trade secrets but you have to be open do not as an entrepreneur that's my advice and again some people will disagree but do not take too much of a personal financial risk in 2021 i was all alone on the payroll of plaster guys with no investors no customers and my second child was just born that didn't feel very nice in my personal life so i was very stressed so if this is a situation you can avoid by all means do avoid it and probably that's the most important do and don'ts,
0: Christoph. Do's and don'ts for an incumbent. What are they when you get involved in disruptive technologies and investing?
1: I think the do. I mean, you have to do your diligence. You, you have really to dig into, you know, before you decide to invest. I mean, make sure you look at it very seriously. You that you feel comfortable with the strategy, with the technology, with the management team, uh, with the plans they have. If you decide to invest, you know. Provide your opinions, your ideas about the future, but the don't is not to be in the details and provide advisors, but stay out and do the best for the for the startup.
0: The other question I had then was, Christoph, what is the exit strategy for a corporation like Dow? Are you looking at an exit strategy, or are you looking at the successful ones being absorbed? We have fintech as a great example to look at, and that's really short history, right?
1: I mean, obviously, we're here for the success of the companies where we invest, so we want them to really be successful. But it's a great question, what comes after? I think it really depends on the technology and what we want to do. And we have different options. I mean, we can completely acquire the company and we can use it ourselves, build, operate. But we can go in licensing models, we can go... There are different options and there is not a single decision for that fits everything. Uh, you have to do case by case because each one has pros and cons. So we are very open-minded to any option. We don't have a favorite one.
0: They don't have a favorite one, Felix. What's yours?
2: Well, I was going to say that it's not a unilateral decision anyways. It takes two to dance. But I think Christoph is right that they should be open-minded. So should the startups. And I, and in my experience, I feel that sometimes the startups, we may have a little bit of an ego problem where we think we know what's best and want to stick to this no matter what. In our case, again, we really try to be driven by the science. Our motivation is that the technology we invented in the lab gets deployed and we're quite quite open to adding new investors, finding new partners, continuing with DAO. As long as the project makes sense and it's acceptable to everyone and we can push this forward, we should.
0: So my final question to you both is, you found a company that basically was born in a university environment. How focused are you on the innovations that are happening in universities? Is that where a lot of people should be paying a little bit more attention,
1: Christoph? It's a great question. We do collaborate with uh, certain strategic universities that we have identified as being strategic. We do have projects ongoing. We can have bilateral agreements, we can use, you know, maybe grants coming from authorities, we can contribute cash, we can contribute uh, people resources. So universities engagement is critical for us. You know, of course we have to be selective, we cannot do it all, but it's also part of what we do and which is also a great way to identify very very early stage, potential startup spin-offs. I
2: agree. I mean, I come from universities, so I can only vouch for ourselves, huh, for the academia, but it has to be done in a smart way. I didn't even know what entrepreneurship was before the very end of my PhD. So I wasn't really ready and I had to adapt very rapidly to this. But I think it's an untapped opportunity because the local ecosystem surrounding universities will fund scientists that want to become entrepreneurs and they will give them tools but then it's up to the entrepreneurs to respect this and use these tools to the best of their abilities to go towards a business direction I think whatever you do is fine if you try to push your innovation forward but my opinion is that if you have a deep tech very difficult technology rely on your industry to help you build this thing
0: Well, I think it's interesting you said that, right, Felix? Every founder is on his or her own journey, and every corporation is trying to grapple with an industry that they are incumbents in, but know that they are getting disrupted, and what they do about it is absolutely key. I really appreciate both of you coming on. Thank you both so very much for those thoughts, and we'll speak to you soon.
2: Thanks, Matri. Thanks. It was great being here.
0: From the belenas, the plastic glass to the Daos of the world, all the innovations that they're banking on, it starts somewhere in a lab with a scientist on the hunt for answers. And labs in universities are where the talent is honed. It's where passionate people dream up ideas that may seem next to impossible, but the work that they're doing to solve plastic waste, for example, well, it's mind-blowing. So let's welcome to the show Dr. Ting Shu, Professor of Chemistry and Material Sciences and Engineering at the University of California, Berkeley. Well, Ting, as she likes to be called, has been working on solutions to ensure that when you see compostable or biodegradable labels, it actually is. And her work even applies to stuff that is just regular plastic. This lady has also won plenty of awards for finding a way for nature and plastics to be in coexistence. thanks very much for joining us. It's my pleasure being here. Professor, let's take it down to the nuts and bolts first, because within biodegradable plastics that your focus is on, there's a big distinction. Not everything is compostable, right? So can you explain the science behind that? Because a lot of people listening see the word biodegradable and assume they're doing the world a great good by buying it.
4: Biodegradable, historically, is really referred to the biomaterial that we use, like a bioimplant or dissolvable thread, you know, the sutures, right? You go into doctor, you have a surgery, they sew you up, and then it dissolves. So biodegradable is basically saying for a plastic or for any component by the chemical composition, they can be degraded by the enzymes or the microbes. But that may or may not happen, depends on the scenario. So run us through the
0: nature-based solutions you've come up with. You've won awards for this. So it
4: obviously works. Plastics are many, many small molecules chained together, hundreds, of thousands of them chained together. So how can you get the enzyme to chew the plastic the way you want it? That's something that we can control. So the only thing that we did are probably two things. One is we try to keep enzyme alive inside of the plastic as well as during the plastic manufacturing. And that is quite important because the enzyme are not evolved to live inside of the plastic. The other thing we think we did is we really try to modulate how the enzyme is going to interact with these long molecules, you know, plastic, micromolecules, in a way that we can control how the reaction is going to turn out. Ting, this is
0: such a baby of a science at the end of the day, but we've made so many advancements in understanding nanotechnology. So is it really a pipe dream that one day we can
4: degrade every kind of plastic out there, no matter how complex the structures? So this is where I may have a disagreement with some of the communities. It's not clear to me we should degrade every plastic. And if you look into thermodynamically, we store a lot of energy in the backbone. So in our study, in the first part we reported, we are really focused on single-use plastics. So those are really plastic films. They degrade, the break down, they get into microplastic. There's very few, little incentive but labor-intensive to collect them, right? They fly into the tree, you have to get in there, to get into the ocean collecting. And because you're not really collecting a lot of materials, um, what, what are you going to get out, right? Just economically, it's not really viable. That's why we think being compostable is a viable solution. But if I have a, a large plastic, let's say I have a plastic chair, I just don't see it's smart for us to degrade those down back to the molecule because then all the energy you put in to store the bond and to produce the plastic is basically getting lost, right? You have to put in energy to degrade them you have to put energy in the initial to make them. And I think this is where we have to really look at the plastic from the multiple angle, you know, in a very comprehensive way. And it's not a one cookie cutter job that, you know, have one solution fit everything. Are you working on finding other ways to deal with plastic waste? Oh, yeah, I think so. You know, we're working actually from multiple directions, actually. We're looking at how can you take inspiration from nature, for example, look at the proteins, and then to make plastic to become compatible with our ecological system from the beginning so that you don't ever even thinking about you have to degrade them or you have to upcycle them. They are just naturally compatible. So imagine if you can have a plastic design at the beginning, it's going to speak the same language as what biology and ecology has evolved then I think we will have harmony with biology, right? So that's one area we have very much interest because then we solve the problem from the bottom. And the other thing is we are very much interested in how to get plastics themselves to be smart so that they can transform themselves, right? Plastics are very young. It's only 100 years old. If you compare it with organic chemistry, you know, organic chemistry or even biology. With a young kid in the block, there's a lot of ways for us to grow And we shouldn't settle where we have been. Do you feel
0: like scientists like you are somewhat got in the middle between industry, policymakers, the public who wants to see something done about all the plastic waste they're seeing floating about in the oceans?
4: As a scientist, I have to say I have the best job. And we are really fortunate to have the opportunity for the taxpayer, for the industry, for the government, for the policymaker to invest on us to satisfy our own curiosity and allow us to dream, to imagine, to explore, and then to have the adventure. And that, in turn, is going to be paid off for the industry. With that said, we have to say that the timeline for basic research to transform into a technology is long, historically, and that has to change. And the industry has also to step forward a little bit be a little bit open and be a little bit adventurous. The other thing is that we have to mention is people. So workforce development, how you're going to invest in the young generation. So I think for industries to invest in graduate students with certain mindset to be the bridge between industry and academic is absolutely key because regardless how much you know, regardless how much you want to invest in early stage technology, you need people to really execute it. And that might just bring everyone to the table. and that's what we're
0: trying to do on this podcast. We say we're going to have open, honest conversations and we're keeping them honest here. Ting, uh, Dr. Xu, thank you so, so very much for joining us. Great. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Going by that conversation, the future for plastics in our hyper-aware world really does come down to combining the power of science, entrepreneurship, and sustainability to propel innovations both in products but also systems. The trillion-dollar question, though, is how do you do that while simultaneously retaining the trust of customers and finding new ways of collaborating across a complex value chain? And the challenge doesn't get bigger than in the Asia-Pacific region, where innovation for solutions and policy changes are happening faster than you'd expect. We're going to talk all things Asia-Pac in our next episode this region will
4: see a lot more investments coming through from the VC side of things, from private capital and more as well. I think from an empowerment perspective, there is a lot of potential that Asia could certainly be maximizing potential on. More nations feeling bolder about taking policy action in the form of EPR laws, for example, but also on building on sustainable solutions as the demand for recycled materials start to grow.
0: Thanks for sticking with us to the end as we hunt for solutions to make plastics truly circular. This podcast is supported by Dow, the material science company. Don't forget to share the show if you enjoyed it. And do leave us a comment or a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast.